And now to introduce today's speaker, we are joined by Dr. Douglas Blackall. He is the Oregon Core Laboratory Medical Director and the Oregon Regional Blood Bank Medical Director. Dr. Blackall was a faculty member at St. Louis University School of Medicine in St. Louis, Missouri, before joining us here at Providence on February 1st, 2021, working tirelessly on our behalf during what has been a tremendous time in clinical and laboratory medicine. Uh, Dr. Blackall, I will turn it over to you. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Dr. Leitcher. Um, it's my pleasure to be here and to speak to you. And I've, uh, since starting in February, I've attended a number of the grand rounds, and I've been really impressed with how practical and useful they've been. And I hope that this uh, will come across in the same way. Now, if you'll indulge me just a moment, because I'm a new person here, I wanted to share a little bit more about my professional background. I'm, I'm from Arkansas of all places, and I uh, that's where I went to medical school, the University of Arkansas. I did all of my pathology and postgraduate training at the University of Pennsylvania in clinical pathology and then fellowship training in transfusion medicine. And I've spent most of my career in the academic sector, um, about five to seven years each at the University of Tennessee Health Science Center in Memphis, UCLA, and then back to the University of Arkansas where I was the director of pathology at Arkansas Children's Hospital. And then in 2010, my wife, who is a nurse, and I uh, embarked on an uh, international, I, I call it pathology practice. It wasn't for her, it was nursing for her. Uh, but we spent about five to six years outside of the country, first in the United Arab Emirates in the Middle East, and then in Rwanda for about two years in East Africa. And then uh, while in Rwanda, I started a public health degree through Johns Hopkins and uh, finished that up uh, in the United States and then had the opportunity to go to Liberia um, as part of a CDC grant, a, a post-Ebola health system strength, strengthening project. Spent about three months there. My wife said, finally, you must get a, a real job. And I did, as Dr. Leitcher mentioned, um, and that was in Saint, at St. Louis University uh, for the last four years. And then on January 6th of this year, it was Hello Portland, and I'm really glad to be here and speaking to you today. And so, as uh, Dr. Leitcher mentioned, I've been uh, here on the Providence staff since February of this year. So I want to talk to you today about transfusion reactions, and um, here are the objectives of my talk. First, I want to give you some background information by defining the steps in, in pre-transfusion testing that promote safety. So these are the routine things that we do to avoid certain transfusion reactions, mostly to prevent infectious disease transmission and prevent hemolytic transfusion reactions. Uh, then I'm going to describe the most common and serious transfusion reactions that we encounter. I want you to understand the laboratory evaluation of suspected transfusion reactions. And then I'll define the pathogenesis of the transfusion reactions that we discuss, along with associated treatment and prevention strategies. And I'm going to do this in a case-based format. Uh, from that, uh, these are all cases I've experienced, including the last one that I'll tell you about uh, that actually I experienced a few weeks ago. 
So let's dive into this. Pre-transfusion testing, well, it's the goal is to minimize risks to the donor and recipient, and it starts with the evaluation of the donor. So for all of you who've ever given blood, you'll understand what this is about. They do a pretty significant history to protect both you as the donor and the recipient, and then uh, a physical exam, which is really a vital sign check uh, more than anything. So that's the uh, that's, that constitutes evaluation of the donor. If you pass, you get to donate a unit of blood, and then we will evaluate that unit, which is the second portion of pre-transfusion testing. We'll look at blood group antigens, ABO and RH. We'll do an antibody screen to look for unexpected antibodies, and then we do a whole host of infectious agent testing. Uh, several tests for hepatitis B, two tests for hepatitis C, two tests for HIV, including HIV nucleic acid testing, and then other testing for antibodies to HTLV1 and 2, standard tests for syphilis, West Nile virus nucleic acid testing, trypanosoma cruzi antibody testing, Zika virus, NAT, and most recently, Babesia nucleic acid testing has been adopted in those areas of the country that are endemic for babesiosis, namely uh, the Northeast and the Upper Midwest. So lots of infectious disease testing is done to ensure this type of safety. So you might wonder, well, what is the risk of transfusion transmitted viral infectious disease? And it's, it's incredibly low. Uh, hepatitis B, one in a million. Hepatitis C and HIV, one in two million. HTLV, one in three million. In fact, the risk is so low that you can't uh, see these reaction, these uh, uh, transmissions, so to speak. These are mathematically derived risk assessments based on the, uh, the uh, likelihood that the disease is present in the donor population, which is really low, prevalence is very low, and then uh, multiply that by the window period of infectivity. Uh, that makes these uh, transmissions extremely rare. But it can still happen because we always will have to deal with the so-called window period of infectious disease transmission. And I thought it might be interesting for you to see how this plays out with respect to the different HIV tests that we do. So here is a, a demonstration of HIV window period with respect to different testing that we can do to detect HIV. So what we have is a, a timeline on the x-axis. So we have a person, let's say a donor, who becomes infected at time zero. And then we have these different lines which reflect our ability to detect HIV based on the, um, our, um, the testing that we do. So if you look at the dotted line, HIV antibody, you'll see that it crosses the x-axis at uh, about 21 days, which is to say that the window period of HIV infectivity with respect to antibody testing is 21 days. It takes that long for the average person to mount a detectable immune response. Uh, that was the first test that was developed in the HIV world, donor world, back in 1985. HIV P24 antigen came along, the reason being is that it further narrows the window period down to about 16 days. And then in the 1990s, uh, we started doing routine nucleic acid testing 
for HIV. The reason being is that it further narrows the window down to around 10 or 11 days. But there always is a window, so there always is at least a theoretical risk of infectious disease transmission with respect to whatever virus is out there that we're interested in and whatever testing that we do to uh, identify that virus. Now, just to be complete, there are other potential transmitted, transfusion transmitted infectious diseases. Bacteria are occasionally implicated. And this is most important in platelet products because of the, the, the fact that they are stored at room temperature. Uh, spirochetes potentially could be transmitted by transfusion. Parasites certainly can. Um, malaria is a big problem, not in the United States, but in the malaria endemic areas, particularly in low-income countries. And then there are other viruses capable of being transmitted by transfusion. So the last part of pre-transfusion testing is our evaluation of the recipient. So this is what we do in the hospital-based blood bank. It always is going to include an antigen type. By that, I mean ABO and RH. It may include an antibody screen, and that is uh, the testing that we do to detect clinically significant blood group antibodies. Then if we find an antibody we and the patient needs to be transfused, we will transfuse them with a unit of blood that lacks that corresponding antigen. What we don't want to happen is for patient antibodies to come in contact with that antigen on donor red cells. And then the final test that we do to ensure safety is the cross-match, which tests the compatibility of our recipient's serum or plasma with the donor red cells that they're actually gonna receive. And the main reason for doing the cross-match is to as a final reconfirmation of the ABO compatibility of our donors and recipients. So this is what uh, I would, all the testing that is encompassed under pre-transfusion testing. And like I said, we do it to promote transfusion safety with, both, with respect to both infectious diseases and uh, immunological safety or the prevention of hemolytic transfusion reactions. So before, departing from this topic, I wanted to show you one more slide that I think is kind of interesting that uh, might be useful to you. And this is the probability of an immunologically safe blood transfusion based on the testing that we do in the lab. So in other words, what we do to prevent hemolytic transfusion reactions. So I'm going to uh, take you on a little mind trip and ask you to uh, think about uh, the, a time um, and it could be in the past or in the future where there might not be any testing for um, immunological testing in the blood bank. You know, I don't know what kind of time that would be, but it would be very different than what we're experiencing now. But let's just say you couldn't do any testing for recipients. You couldn't do any testing for donors. Well, how, if you just mixed and matched, how safe would that transfusion be from an immunological perspective or the, uh, the ability to prevent a hemolytic reaction? Well, if you do no testing at all, your patient has about a two-thirds chance, 64% chance of having a safe transfusion. That's, so that's actually pretty good, but obviously not good enough because the other third of the patients will be at high risk for ABO incompatible reactions. But look what happens if we just add ABO grouping to 
the uh, to the benefit that we get with respect to transfusion safety. Now we're up to more than 99% of patients will have a safe transfusion from the immunological perspective. If we do other testing, we just get a slight incremental benefit, RH typing, antibody screening, cross-matching. So uh, you can see that just with ABO and RH, you have a very safe transfusion. Now that's important because you know, think about the trauma setting where we give generally O negative uncrossed matched blood. Well, that sounds like it would be pretty unsafe or risky, but actually it isn't at all because 99.8% of those patients will have a safe transfusion, immunologically speaking. And um, the only people who are at any risk are those people who come in who have pre existing blood group antibodies. So, I hope you'll understand or appreciate that uh, we do a lot of testing to prevent to promote safety, but occasionally things will still go wrong. Now, I want to just hearken back to uh, these risks of infectious disease transmission because I want to put these in perspective with the non-adverse effects or adverse effects of transfusion that I want to talk about today. So we're talking one in a million, two million, three million here, but the non-infectious adverse effects of transfusion are much more common. Acute hemolytic reactions are felt to occur in one in 33,000 transfusions, 5% mortality. Febrile non-hemolytic reactions, one in 500. Urticarial or allergic reactions are among our most common, one to three in every 100 person who is uh, transfused. Anaphylactic reactions, about one in 20,000 transfusions. Transfusion-related acute lung injury or trolley, about one in 50,000 transfusions with a, also a 5% mortality. And then transfusion-associated circulatory overload or TACO is actually very common. If you were to do active surveillance and seek out these, uh, these reactions, probably one in 100 transfused patients will have one. Now, if you wait passively for those to be, these to be reported to you, then they become much less common. But these are the reactions that we're gonna talk about today. So just as a little more background on transfusion reactions, well, a lot of things can go wrong. So we've talked about infectious diseases, hemolysis, patients can have fevers, allergies, anaphylaxis, lung injury, circulatory overload, all sorts of things can go wrong. Fortunately, most of them are pretty rare. But I like to try to think of ways to organize transfusion reactions because it's a little overwhelming otherwise. So you could some organizing principles that you could apply would be by causative agent. For example, is it transfusion transmitted or not infectious in nature or by the mechanism of the disease? Is it immune mediated or not? Or by the time of onset, is it more immediate in, um, in its presentation, either during or say within six hours of transfusion, or is it more delayed in onset? So these would be different organizing principles that you could apply. But the way that I like to look at transfusion reactions is by uh, applying a differential diagnosis. So um, in my past, when I dealt very um, every day with residents and they would call me at night and tell me about transfusion reactions, I would, no matter what they said or how complicated they got, all I really wanted to know is what, what's the major presenting sign or symptom? Because 
it's around that that I will develop a differential diagnosis. So as an example here, if a patient has a fever, well, there are five things that I would think about. Acute hemolytic reaction, febrile non-hemolytic transfusion reaction, potential bacterial contamination of the donor unit, a trolley reaction can lead to uh, fever. And then all, all, we always have to remember that uh, no, no well patient gets transfused. All our patients are sick and are likely or, or can uh, develop fevers on their own. So it could simply be that fever that occurs in close proximity to transfusion is actually the patient's underlying clinical condition. Okay, so these are the major acute transfusion reactions that we're going to talk about today. Uh, I'm going to give you a case presentation of each from my, uh, my recollections and experience. We'll talk about the pathogenesis, the etiology, and then some treatment and prevention strategies along the way. So if there are any questions at this point, this would be a good time uh, because we're going to dive in from here on. And if no questions, that's great. So we'll start with a classic acute hemolytic reaction. This is actually one I experienced at, when I was at UCLA. A 65-year-old woman is admitted to the hospital to undergo a spinal surgical procedure. Prior to surgery, she donated two units of her own blood, so-called autologous donation, and her husband provided a unit of his blood, a directed donation. There was significant blood loss during surgery, and she needed to be transfused. Unfortunately, rather than receiving her own group O unit, the patient was transfused with a group A unit of blood. So she experienced an ABO hemolytic transfusion reaction. So the etiology and pathophysiology are, are marked out here. These are almost always antigen antibody reactions due to ABO incompatibility. Um, other blood group antibodies are occasionally implicated, but it's really ABO incompatibility. And these are almost always clerical errors at their heart. The problem is that a lot of things can go bad from a pathophysiologic standpoint when uh, anti-A or anti-B antibodies uh, meet their corresponding antigens in vivos. The so-called neuroendocrine system can become activated leading to bradykinin generation and hypotension. Complement cascade can be activated, leading to intravascular hemolysis. The coagulation cascade can be activated, putting these patients at risk for DIC. And cytokines are elaborated that promote thrombosis. So all bad things that shouldn't be happening in vivo. Now, the primary concern, though, in acute hemolytic reactions is renal ischemia. This is due to hypotension, this is due to vasoconstriction, intravascular thrombus formation, and the nef nephrotoxic effect of free heme uh, also can contribute to acute kidney injury. So the kidneys take the biggest whack, so to speak, and have to be uh, the greatest attention has to be provided to that organ system. So how do acute hemolytic reactions present? Well, basically they can present in any way, but I have fever highlighted because it is the most common presenting sign of an acute hemolytic reaction. 70 to 80% of patients will spike a temperature. 
um, which is why uh, nurses will have a fairly low threshold for getting interested when a, a patient has a, a fever during uh, transfusion. Um, the symptoms can be mild though, they can be sudden, they can be acute, um, and then if a patient is anesthetized, you really don't have too much to go on except uh, certain signs, uh, and, and uh, they can manifest by hypotension, hemoglobinuria, maybe evidence of excessive bleeding, as you'd see with DIC. But almost anything goes, as you can see from this listing. So what should you do if you expect that your patient is having an acute hemolytic reaction or acute reaction of any type? Well, first of all, stop the transfusion, keep the IV line open, administer saline, and believe it or not, there's an evidence base that strongly suggests that the more incompatible blood that you receive, the worse the outcome. So um, that seems very intuitive uh, and it's uh, evidence-based at the same time. Um, we'll ask nursing to perform a clerical check at bedside to immediately determine if the patient has really gotten the unit of blood that was intended for them. They should notify us and then send the appropriate specimens that we will need. We'll, we'll need the blood bag back and associated tubing, any accompanying paperwork, and we do our serological work off of a purple or lavender top tube. The primary goals of therapy are really symptomatic. There's nothing you can really do to put a halt to these reactions once they occur. So symptomatic treatment, treat hypotension, promote renal blood flow, treat DIC. And I should mention that this case that I presented you, that patient uh, immediately uh, went into oliguric renal failure and DIC. She required, required more blood products. She required several weeks of dialysis, but she eventually got better. Now, let me tell you about the laboratory evaluation that we do for transfusion reactions in the blood bank. So we will do our own clerical check to assure or demonstrate that the patient received or did not receive the, the appropriate unit of blood. And then we'll do a visual inspection of the serum looking for free hemoglobin. So you'll see what you probably want to see, which is what is on the left, a straw colored serum, that's normal serum. Uh, but if we see red discoloration, that's evidence of hemoglobinemia and uh, also evidence of intravascular hemolysis. So we do this visual inspection and you might think, oh, that's kind of a hokey thing to do, but actually it's not. It's very quick and easy. And it turns out that it's very sensitive tests for intravascular hemolysis in that if you hemolyze as little as a five mil volume of red cells, in the intravascular space, you will see that as uh, evidence, evidenced by hemoglobinemia. So it's a very sensitive, quick, and easy test. The key serological test, though, that we do is the direct Coombs test, looking for the patient's cells coated with new antibody that shouldn't be there, anti-A or anti-B. So those are the three major tests that we do, and I can tell you with very high assurance, approaching 100%, if the clerical check is good, if the visual inspection of the serum is good, that is, there's no free hemoglobin, and if the direct Coombs test is negative, I can rule out an acute hemolytic transfusion reaction. Now, we may do some other things in the blood bank, like repeat the ABORH, antibody screen cross-match. You could 
send us a urine and we could look for a free hemoglobin in the urine, although not at all necessary. We could do lab tests for evidence of hemolysis like bilirubin, LDH, haptoglobin, but also really not necessary. It's those first three things that really tell us what's going on when we do a transfusion reaction workup. So finally, before leaving this topic, um, let me uh, reiterate that there's since there's no specific therapy for these reactions, prevention is absolutely the key. So the laboratory does a number of things to prevent these reactions. We assure the accuracy of ABO typing. We assure that the correct type is ascribed to the correct patient and also assure that internal processes are in place for accurate blood product labeling and distribution. And then we're also heavily reliant on our nursing staff to assure that all process, processes are in place and followed so that the correct patient receives the correct unit of blood. And I, like I mentioned, uh, acute hemolytic transfusion reactions are almost always due to clerical error. It's where the Swiss cheese lines up inappropriately, the holes line up, uh, because in my experience, I've only seen a couple of these, but there are all, always multiple weak links in the chain, transfusion chain that have led to these reactions. Okay, so that's an acute reaction. Move on to a febrile non-hemolytic reaction. So here's another classic case. 50-year-old woman, multiparous, with myelodysplastic syndrome, needs a total hip arthroplasty. At the end of the procedure, she has a low platelet count of 40,000, so her surgeon orders a platelet transfusion. Near the end of the transfusion, she has a fever, uh, 36.5 to 39, accompanied by chills. All other vital signs are stable. She receives Tylenol, her fever promptly resolves. So really an isolated fever with chills in association with transfusion. So the etiology of these reactions are uh, really the exposure of the patient to pyrogenic cytokines. So uh, this can either happen through the infusion of preformed pyrogenic cytokines in the, the blood product itself, this is particularly relevant with platelets that sit on the shelf and can elaborate cytokines. But probably the more common mechanism is that the patient has agglutinating or cytotoxic antibodies that react with white cells in the donor unit. This would be particularly relevant in a patient like this, uh, who's a, a female, multiparous, and has been heavily transfused because she has MDS she is at risk for making HLA antibodies that can lead to the elaboration of these cytokines. So whatever the mechanism, the, the signs and symptoms are the same, temperature elevation, uh, either during or within six hours of transfusion, that's, the, that's by case definition, may be associated with chills and rigors, not life-threatening any, in any way, but certainly a source of patient discomfort. So, how do we approach these? Well, these are diagnoses of exclusion. We don't do anything in the blood bank to, for example, to measure cytokines or anything sophisticated like that. What we have to do is, is rule out other things. And then if this seems the most likely uh, uh, adverse reaction clinically, then that's what we call it. So we, because these are associated with fever, we need to rule out an acute hemolytic reaction. Um, we can consider the possibility of a bacterial contamination of the unit. 
And then we always have to be concerned about the patient's underlying clinical condition. Fortunately, patients generally respond to antipyretics. Rigers may require other medications. We will do our usual blood bank evaluation because we have to rule out an acute hemolytic reaction. And I, I should make a side point here that when we, when you send us a transfusion reaction workup, what we do is exactly what I told you that we did in uh, reference to acute hemolytic reactions. In other words, our transfusion reaction workup is a rule in or rule out for an acute hemolytic reaction. Basically, any other adverse reaction is a clinical diagnosis, although there are some corroborating lab tests that we can sometimes uh, provide. Now, the best way to prevent febrile non-hemolytic reactions is to provide patients with leukocyte-reduced cellular blood products, meaning red cells and platelets. And fortunately, it's a standard practice nowadays that all uh, red cells and platelets are leukocyte reduced. So you don't have to worry about that, in other words. Now, as a side note, uh, it's interesting to think that there's no evidence supporting a prophylactic role for antipyretics. So antipyretics are good at treating acute or uh, febrile non-hemolytic reactions, but there is no evidence that they can actually prevent these reactions. Although it's pretty common practice to pre-medicate patients with Tylenol. And I do know. Okay, we'll move along to uh, probably the most common adverse effect of transfusion, which is an urticarial reaction. So here we have a 55-year-old woman, end-stage liver disease, secondary to hep C infection. She has GI bleeding from esophageal varices. Her PTINR is pretty significantly um, elevated. So she gets two units of FFP prior to an endoscopy procedure. Shortly after completion of the FFP units, however, the patient blades of an itchy rash on her chest and upper arms. That could have looked something like this, you know, seriously um, scratchy, itchy rash with hives in this case. So these are, can be intensely uncomfortable for patients, as you may have seen. What these are, these urticarial reactions, are simple, simply allergic reactions to soluble proteins in donor plasma, and they tend to be dose-dependent, meaning the more plasma you get exposed to, the more likely are you would be to have a reaction of this type. So they tend to be most common with FFP and platelets, less so with red cells. And as mentioned, they're not dangerous in and of themselves, but they are a source of uh, very, um, uh, a lot of patient discomfort and uh, anxiety in my experience. So the, the presentation is hives or a pruritic rash short, during or shortly after transfusion, usually occur without other symptoms, um, although, uh, and no fever is generally seen. Although on occasion, these reactions will uh, become, will be more severe in their presentation. Patients may have some laryngeal edema, some shortness of breath. You may see some uh, falling off of the blood pressure. In other words, they take on more anaphylactic type of presentation. So I actually like to think of allergic reactions as spanning a spectrum from simple urticarial reactions to uh, frank anaphylaxis. Now, urticarial reactions are kind of interesting in that if they are localized to the skin, that is, there's no other signs or symptoms, 
They're the only adverse reaction in which blood can be safely discontinued and then restarted after antihistamines are given. Um, in my experience, nursing, nursing staff are, are more, more commonly reluctant to do this, but just so you know, it is an acceptable practice um, to stop the reaction, give antihistamines, and then continue as long as it's a simple uh, um, allergic reaction. Patients do respond to antihistamines, so if you give Benadryl, patients uh, are very likely to respond quickly. But as with Tylenol there, and febrile reactions, there's no evidence supporting a prophylactic role for antihistamines. Um, that's been well studied in uh, the transfusion medicine uh, world, and just it, it just can't prevent them, although great treatment for them. So if localized, our blood bank evaluation is going to be very limited. We may do a clerical check. We may just do that uh, quick um, uh, visualization for hemolysis, but we're not going to probably do our full-blown workup because the presentation here is very different than acute an acute hemolytic reaction. So let me take you to the other side of the spectrum, which is an anaphylactic reaction. So this is another case that I had at UCLA. 14-year-old boy, diagnosis of ALL, hospitalized to begin chemotherapy. He's received multiple transfusions in the past without incident, but after infusion of 50 milliliters of a platelet product, he been, begins to cough and wheeze. His breathing becomes labored. His O2 sap falls to 80%, and his blood pressure starts to bottom out. But he remains afebrile. So classic anaphylactic presentation. So um, anaphylactic reactions, the etiology is kind of interesting because this is one of these cases in medicine where we have a classic cause that especially medical students and residents have to learn about for boards and all that, but the classic really isn't that common. So the classic presentation is these reactions occur in patients who are absolutely IgA deficient. They have no detectable IgA. They've developed anti-IgA antibodies through pregnancy or transfusion. That's their source of exposure. And then when they get transfused again with an IgA-containing product like plasma, they have a full-blown allergic, serious anaphylactic reaction. So, that occurs sometimes, but really it probably only occur, occurs about 15 to 20% of times in that we can identify uh, that patient as being IgA deficient. So the other 80, 85% of the time, these are just serious allergic reactions due to exposure to some plasma protein. So I can summarize by saying that Serious allergic and anaphylactic reactions are really idiosyncratic in nature for the most part in that they are donor dependent. That donor just happens to have something in their plasma to which the patient has an adverse response. Now, the signs and symptoms are those of anaphylaxis. I don't need to belabor that. Uh, one interesting thing is that the symptoms can occur after very small volumes of product are infused. Um, so that can sometimes be a tip-off that what you are seeing in the patient is a, um, an anaphylactic reaction. So what do we, how do we manage these? Well, stop the transfusion immediately, keep IV line open as with all adverse reactions, 
but you're going to need to treat the anaphylaxis generally with epinephrine, steroids for prophylaxis and to prevent rebound after the epinephrine has worn off. We will do our usual blood bank evaluation, again, to rule out a hemolytic reaction. Um, and then I sometimes ask clinicians to do quantitative IgA studies. Um, and it, if it turns out the patient doesn't have detectable IgA, there are special labs that we can send a, a sample to to look for anti-IgA antibodies. And that becomes important because if you've had a patient who has an anaphylactic reaction, they are absolutely IgA deficient and they have to be transfused again, they are going to be at high risk for another anaphylactic reaction. So what can we do? Well, if they need a red cell transfusion, it's actually pretty easy because red cells can be washed free of contaminating plasma, so to speak, and rendered IgA deficient. But if the patient needs another type of a blood product, anything containing plasma, well, you got, you're sort of out of luck. Um, some donor centers will have a listing of IgA deficient uh, donors, so you might get lucky and be able to uh, tap into that resource, or if you have time and your patient has the inclination, uh, the patient could give their own blood products, which normal naturally would be IgA deficient. But those all, these are all things that take time and a lot of energy. And so in the end, probably what you're gonna end up doing is prophylaxing the patient with steroids, have epinephrine ready and just transfuse and deal with it. And uh, I've seen that work many times. And we know that we have a lot of patients in the hospital who have serious allergic reactions and they sometimes have to be exposed to the allergen and we find ways to deal with that. So the fifth reaction that I'll tell you about is transfusion-related acute lung injury, which we call trolley, and this is another UCLA case. Three-year-old girl with metastatic Wilms tumor admitted to the hospital for surgical evaluation. She received chemotherapy and is now anemic. She was transfused with 150 mil aliquot of red cells without incident, but then 30 minutes later, she began to cough and had increasing difficulty breathing. She also developed a fever and was hypotensive. Eventually, she required intubation for increasing respiratory effort, poor oxygenation, and chest X-ray revealed a whiteout of both lung fields. So I'm certainly no radiologist, but the, the left panel here is of a what's said to be a normal chest X-ray, and the right is uh, in a patient who had a trolley reaction. So you can see whiteout, top to bottom, both lung fields. And if you really were to look close, you would see nodular densities. Um, the radiologists would say that this has an ARDS type picture, which it does. Uh, and the, the diagnosis of trolley is made when you see this presentation, see this chest X-ray in somebody who has been recently transfused. And by recent, Case definition tells us within during or within six hours of transfusion. That's that's how we can make a trolley case. Now the etiology is is pretty specific for these reactions. These are donor derived antibodies, usually HLA antibodies in the donor that react with the recipient's leukocytes, leading to white cell aggregation, leukocyte degranulation, 
and, uh, and pulmonary endothelial injury, which leads to uh, increased vascular permeability and a capillary leak type syndrome. So this is a type of non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema in the end. Um, there are underlying clinical factors that may predispose patients to these reactions, but most will, uh, we will be able to identify a donor with an HLA-specific antibody. Um, there are patient and donor-specific issues not well understood that contribute to these reactions, uh, as some classic cases are not associated with these antibodies, but it's all, always something that we would look into. So how do these, pa these patients present? Well, the, this is the presentation of acute respiratory distress during or shortly following transfusion. And as I said, case definition tells us it's within six hours. Patients will ha may have chills, fever, and hypotension because of cytokine elaboration. Chest X-ray is, is what I showed you, pulmonary edema, but no evidence of left heart failure. And there are variable degrees of respiratory insufficiency, but I can tell you in the five or so cases I've seen in 25 years, um, all the patients had to be put on the ventilator. But the good thing is that unlike other causes of ARDS, like sepsis, for example, these patients generally do very well and they will generally be extubated within three to four days and they have no residual lung uh, functional damage as far as we can tell. But there is a, a, a fairly high fatality rate, about 5%. Um, so sort of like a, an acute hemolytic reaction. Okay, the, oh, so what do we do for uh, when we suspect trolley? Well, we stop the transfusion immediately, provide respiratory support. That's the most important thing. There's really nothing from an evidence-based uh, that you can do that is shown to be effective. Although, because these are immunological reactions, some people will give IV steroids. You, you might end up giving epinephrine if you, if you had difficulty discerning this type of reaction from an anaphylactic reaction. We are going to do our usual blood bank evaluation. And then if we really think this is a trolley reaction, we, meaning me, will, uh, will contact our donor center and let them know about this possibility so that they can assess their, the donor of this unit for leukocyte antibodies. And then if they identify that the donor has leukoagglutinins, those donors will be deferred from further donations. And I should tell you that, and you might find this interesting, all plasma that is, don that is transfused in the United States comes from male donors. Believe it or not, I can tell you that with 100% certainty because that is a trolley mitigation strategy that was put into effect in the United States about 10 years ago. The reason is that it's much more common for women to have HLA antibodies than men. And uh, there's much more plasma that is collected in the United States than we need for transfusion. So we can, uh, we, we can uh, revert to an all-male plasma um, transfusion product to, as I said, mitigate trolley. Okay, final reaction that I'm going to tell you about actually occurred at one of our Providence, Oregon regional hospitals in the la within the last two weeks. So I won't give you any more than that. An elderly woman with a complex cardiac history, including congestive heart failure, 
receive a two-unit outpatient RBC transfusion for hemoglobin of 8.2. And I can tell you that sounds weird, but there were some compelling reasons for this. The next morning, she presented to the ED with palpitations, chest tightness, anxiety, shortness of breath, and leg swelling. Physical exam revealed rales and lower extremity edema. Chest X-ray demonstrated cardiomegaly and pulmonary edema. Lab evaluation showed a hemoglobin of 11 and an elevated BNP. She was admitted to the intermediate medical care unit, provided respiratory support, underwent diuresis, and was discharged from the hospital three days later at her baseline level of health. So to me, I don't have a laboratory test uh, that makes the diagnosis of transfusion-associated circulatory overload or TACO, but it seemed very likely that that's what this patient uh, suffered from. So this isn't her chest X-ray, but it's a, a demonstrative of what you would see. So again, on the left panel, normal chest X-ray. On the right, somebody who has a severe pulmonary edema, uh, mostly um, lucency in the uh, lower lung fields, evidence of cardiomegaly, volume overload, in other words. So what's the etiology, pathophysiology? Well, this is what we all learned in medical school. Uh, increased volume, in this case transfusion, leads to an increase in central venous pressure, an increase in pulmonary blood volume, and congestive heart failure with a result in pulmonary edema. Uh, patients with, and I, just as a side note, patients with significant anemia uh, are at particular risk because the, the heart is in a hyperkinetic state and is intolerant or generally intolerant of even slight increases in blood volume. So those patients who are very anemic who come to you um, might require special care in transfusion. In other words, don't overdo it, especially if they are, have a compensated severe anemia. What are risk factors for trolley? Well, this patient had about all of them, uh, either elderly or very young. Patients with cardiac failure, respiratory failure, renal impairment, hypoalbuminemia, or as I said, severe anemia. How do they present? Well, I think we all understand the presentation of um, pulmonary edema, circulatory overload. It was like this patient with a few other things thrown in. So what should we do when we have a patient who is experiencing circulatory overload in association with transfusion? Stop the transfusion, notify the blood bank. Even though these are treated clinically, we still would like to know about them um, because we, uh, as, a, as a basis for uh, in performance improvement, unless we know about a problem, we really can't tackle it. So we would like to know about it provide supplemental oxygen, diuresis as needed, put the patient in a sitting position, repeat diuretics, could even consider therapeutic phlebotomy, although that would be very difficult to accomplish quickly. All the things that uh, are part and parcel of uh, more intensive care. So how do we prevent TACO in susceptible patients? Well, we can administer the transfusion maybe more slowly than we would, one mil per kilogram body weight per hour. Uh, we have to, by, um, by regulation, get red cells transfused within four hours, but we, can, we have a, that amount of time to do it. 
monitor the patient carefully, uh, detect signs of volume overload early, and, and intervene as necessary. Consider prophylactic diuretics. Uh, that can be helpful too. Okay, so I'd like to just conclude with a few comments. Um, blood product transfusion is a common medical intervention. We transfuse about 20 million blood products per year in the United States, but I would maintain it has a narrow therapeutic window. There, the, the difference between benefit and risk is pretty narrow when it comes to blood products, which means that uh, personally, I encourage a judicious evidence-based approach to transfusion. There are very good uh, evidence-based guidelines these days that uh, can and should be followed, but it's not just me. Uh, it turns out we have a regional transfusion safety committee that's headed by our transfusion safety officer, Nanette Berg, and we are interested in improving transfusion safety throughout the region. We'll do this we're fledgling though, I must tell you. So we'll do this through uh, educational initiatives, talks such as this. Uh, we're going to pub start publicizing and our blood use guidelines, which are evidence-based and make uh, get those in your mind when you transfuse. And um, Nanette has a really uh, high level analytical way to start that we can use to start monitoring transfusion behavior and promote best practice. For example, in the coming year, we want to embark on a project to maximize one unit red cell transfusion orders. Um, it turns out, I think, that uh, we have too many two unit or two plus unit transfusion orders in the Oregon region, and that puts our patients at risk for uh, adverse effects, mostly um, circulatory overload. So I would maintain that um, transfusions that are given in multiple units should actually be viewed as single units with respect to risk and benefit. And I'd also maintain that two unit transfusions, that second unit uh, has less benefit and possibly increased risk than that first unit. So I would like to see us improve our, uh, our one unit red cell transfusion order frequency. We're at about a 69% uh, regional um, metric right now. And I think we could uh, stretch to 90%. That would be considered a high level practice nationally. More to this, more on this to come. And maybe if I get a um, return engagement, I, I could give a talk about uh, evidence-based transfusion practice. I would like to do that. The final comment I'll make is, um, is something, a, ref a reflection from something that uh, one of my colleagues at St. Louis University told me. It wasn't in reference to transfusion, it was in reference to meetings. He's, he told me that the best meetings he ever goes to are the meetings that got canceled. And I thought that was hilarious. But when I think about it, uh, it may be that the most effective transfusion you give will be no transfusion at all. And so I'll leave it at that and say thank you. I'm enjoying being in Oregon. I really like the Oregon coast and being outside and I welcome any questions that you might have. Great. <clears throat> Thank you very much, Dr. Blackall. We so appreciate the education um, and understanding the work for the safety of our patients.
Um, I'll leave a, a couple moments for people to continue to post any comments or questions, um, but I will start us off. Um, just wanted to return um, to the symptom of fever in a patient during transfusion. Um, sounds like initial plan, always stop the infusion of the transfusion. Um, and I noted it, it feels time sensitive to understand if there is hemolysis occurring or not. Um, and I wondered the specific blood bank evaluation um, will our nursing staff be familiar with reaching out specifically to the blood bank for the appropriate visual test of the hemoglobinemia, or how do we achieve that? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. And um, our nursing staff is aware that they need, they're the ones who need to order a transfusion reaction workup. So when it is, uh, when it's concluded between providers that, you know, we need to stop this transfusion and do a workup, nursing knows that they need to order that transfusion reaction workup in EPIC, and then we will take it from there, uh, requesting the appropriate uh, material that we'll, we'll need to do our workup. And I'm understanding that by and large, you would suggest initiating that um, even if only fever is what we're seeing, which presumably ends up being a non-hemolytic transfusion-related fever. Yeah, it's a it's a tough one. Um, you know, if if you fail or stop a transfusion, everybody who has a fever, you're going to be uh, provi preventing a lot of people from not getting a blood product that you really think they need. So um, sometimes I'm called about this patient who has an isolated fever, should we stop or not? And um, it's a tough one to, to think about. Um, you know, if, if I stop everyone or, or ask everyone to be stopped, patients won't be transfused. And, uh, but if you let everyone go, you, you know, eventually one of those is gonna be associated with an acute hemolytic reaction. So I kind of think it depends on the patient their clinical background presentation. If the patient has already been spiking fevers and this is nothing new for them, then it might be uh, better practice to push on through the transfusion. I, I, I couldn't argue against that. Great, many, many thanks for your thoughts. That makes a lot of sense as we're often dealing with a bit of gray in medical practice and nuance there. Um, I have a question here regarding one versus multiple unit transfusions. Um, how many of these are in the operative setting, such as preoperative, during, or after um, versus other settings? Well, um, actually, when we do our, apply our analytics, we are excluding those, uh, those surgical um, focused transfusions. So, we're, we're not talking about bleeding patients. We're, we're talking about otherwise stable, mostly medical patients. So in, like I said, in Oregon, uh, in our, in Providence region, about 69% of our transfusions are single unit transfusions. And I think we have, and then meaning 31% are multi-unit transfusions. I think we have a significant opportunity to improve practice and promote patient safety. I've already seen uh, a handful of TACO cases and they were invariably multi-unit transfusions in patients who I think could have 
benefited by a single unit. Great, thank you for those thoughts. Um, another question about the timing of the antibody screen and cross-match. Um, sometimes there are questions from patients or providers about ordering this as a just-in-case transfusion is needed. Could you give comments on the necessity and timing of that? Yeah, so um, it sort of depends on the, the surgical procedure, and that that's kind of, I think, the, the, the framework here is in surgery. So. If uh, the way I would think of it is if the patient has virtually no uh, likelihood of transfusion, certainly no pre-transfusion testing is indicated. If the patient could be transfused, but it's low likelihood, then the best thing to order is a type and screen. Uh, what that does is it gets the, the patient's sample into the blood bank. We do ABO, RH, antibody screen. If there are any antibody issues, we will work them up. And um, then the only thing that you, uh, if the patient needs to be transfused, uh, you'll order a cross match and it takes us five minutes to do that. So uh, low likelihood, but possibility of transfusion, best order is type and screen. High likelihood of transfusion, type and cross match, where we actually will do all the testing and have units reserved for our patients. Great, thank you. That makes a lot of sense. Um, another uh, issue and question that came up partially during your case presentations is there have been questions about the need for leukocyte reduced um, blood products. It sounds like that is typically a standard practice and with dealing with high risk patients such as those with pregnancy or transfusion history, there are not necessarily special orders needed from the provider. Yeah, that's that is true. Um, uh, the blood banking community about I don't know I'd say 20 years ago was kind of up in arms about you know should we promote universal leukoreduction of blood products or should we do it selectively for patients who at, who might be at greatest risk for adverse reactions like our hemoc patients for example. So there was a big tussle in the blood banking world, but the way the um, dust settled was that uh, it's become common standard practice for all patients to receive leukocyte reduced blood products. And the major benefit that provides is that there's really two, but the first is everybody is at lower risk for febrile non-hemolytic reactions. So it used to be before leukocyte reduce, reduction, one to 2% of all patients would have a febrile reaction with a cellular blood product transfusion. Now it's more like one in 500 patients. So we, we really significantly decreased that risk, which I think is important. And then the second major benefit is in the hemoc world and providing leukocyte reduced products decreases the risk of HLA antibody formation and platelet alloimmunization. And that's a major benefit in HEMOC. So I'm glad that we as a community finally settled that we needed to really provide uh, the highest quality blood product, that being a leukocyte reduced blood product. Great, um, and thanks again for your comments regarding an evidence-based and, and restrictive approach to transfusion in general. We'll look forward to future talks. Um, thanks so much for joining us today, Dr. Blackall. Uh, we'll see everybody next week. Thank you.